0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie, and I'm here today with my friends and colleagues, Dr Jimmy Van and Dr Kirsten Mills. Say hello, Jimmy and Kirsten. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today we are um, continuing our series on um, classic films adapted into teen movies. Um, I can't remember um, the, the technical term for this sort of genre, but that's what I'm going to call it.
1: I've called it teen adaptation.
0: Yes, I, I remembered that you had a word, team adaptation. Um, so <laughs> thank you, Jimmy. So today we're focusing on um, my personal favourite of this team adaptation genre, which is um, Clueless, the 1995 film, which is, of course, an adaptation of the 1815 novel um, Emma by Jane Austen. Uh, so I'm going to throw to Kirsten first to ask her what she thinks of... One of my favourite movies, Clueless.
1: <laughs> in um,
0: case you wanted to know what I thought. <laughs>
2: <yeah>. <laughs> um, well, look, I agree with you. I, I love it. Um, it's not one. So we talked recently about 10 Things I Hate About You mm-hmm. and how much that is the perfect film. And it largely um, it came in at the right time when I was a teenager at the time when it came out. Clueless is a lot earlier than that. I think I was I was ten when it came out, so I actually didn't watch it at the time. Um, I first came to it in my final year of high school when I got to study it alongside Emma as an adaptation, and I fell in love with it. It was so clever. Um, I remember prior to that um, being at my cousin's house, and I think it was on in the TV on the TV in the background, and I remember one of the adults saying something about oh, why are you watching that American teenage trash? And they had no idea what it was, you know. So when the film was released as well, it wasn't marketed as an Emma adaptation. It wasn't Mm -hmm. mentioned anywhere, um, you know, on the posters or in the film, you know, really itself. So I think much like audiences at the time would have been surprised when they realised that certain elements of this are sounding familiar and they realised it's an Emma adaptation. I think I got to experience... um, the joy and the beauty of finding out just how bloody clever Mm. to put it bluntly, this Mm. film is as an adaptation. I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, It's just, so like, it's got, it's got that fun element for me because of my personal history coming across it, you know, final year of high school and the year after I, I went into uni and I studied English literature. And I think the joy of, doing adaptation studies in high school, um, this and 10 Things I Had About You, um, really helped that. It it showed just how fun, how fresh, how relevant literary studies, um, especially combined with film studies, can be. And that was just so fun for me. Um, But the film itself, I think, um, much like 10 Things I Had About You, is just this perfect capsule, this kind of fantasy version of 90s America, which at the time was kind of teen culture for a lot of the Western world anyway. And it's kind of this immortalised bubble um, that I think reads just as fresh today as it did then. Um, It just does so many things so well. It's got the fantastic soundtrack. It's laden with pop culture references that we can still get and enjoy now. It has its own vocabulary that actually entered Team discourse around the world and had people say whatever and as if <laughs>
0: <laughs> the jimmy's doing, doing the hand movements, movements yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um so it's just it's got all of that it, it's so happy it's and, and then in fact that was something that um amy heckling said that she really wanted when when she was asked um you know what look are you going for with the film what should, what kind of colors should we use what kind of lighting what kind of scenes and sets she just said I want it to be to be happy and she had a really specific idea in mind of what was happy and what wasn't and I think it just comes across as so bright it's part of this fantasy world everything is so bright so colorful the fashion plays into this um so everything is so outlandish but but so um it's got one foot in reality and it's taking a giant leap into fantasy I think that's sort of maybe a way to sum up. The whole film. Um, so it's, it's just so wonderfully uh, extravagant but underneath it all it, it's got this sort of veneer of the superficial um, privileged teenage life but underneath there's something so deep and heartfelt and innocent naive and heartwarming I think um, and largely that's to do with the characters themselves and, and maybe even to do with the team actors. Um, not just the teen ones, the adults do a brilliant job as well. But I think having this kind of fresh faced cast of people who would go on to be mm. stars later, and much like 10 Things I Heard About You had the same thing, there's something so, there's, there's kind of an energy about that. It's just so fresh and so um, vibrant and youthful. And I think that helps it, you know, enter this kind of immortal zone as well. And then underneath all of that, it's an incredibly intelligent handling of. Emma, as an adaptation. So I just think it's just so incredibly layered and no matter which way you come at it, it remains sophisticated, intelligent, but heartwarming and real all at the same time. So that's quotable. what I think about it.
0: Yes, quotable, <laughs> quotable. Just as you were talking, I was just thinking of, you know, some of the great one-liners like, you know, is that Billy Holiday? Oh, I love him, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> call that address. Who says? And she says, Calvin Klein, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> It's just so, yeah, there's something so delightful about you know it's the kind of movie that you can always just throw on and be delighted by, and I agree that the whole palette is is happy and fun and bright, um, but it's not stupid. it's got something serious to say underneath all of that, but just the the visual experience of sitting down and watching, and I've seen it so many times, but whenever I put it on, it's just it just lightens the mood It just makes you feel up. yeah, that's the best way. To, to describe it. Jimmy, how, how do you feel about
1: Clueless? Um, okay, so I suppose, you know, um, I, I didn't know it was an adaptation of Emma. In fact, I didn't even know what Emma was when I watched this film. So I was actually, I was probably the target audience at the time. So it came out in 1995. I was exactly the age of the characters uh, in this film. Uh, I had no idea that it was based on a book or anything. So I thought it was actually an original film when I watched it at the cinema when it came out. We should tell you how dated I am. Uh, But I thought it was just such a delightful film. And I completely agree with the whole happiness thing. You know, it's one of those... I I love films like that where it's just happy from start to end. You know, you don't get a sense of... uh, I don't know. You know, Steph and I have had a lot of arguments about this, but I hate things that makes me frustrated (laughs) or angry. She loves those sort of things. I can't stand it. So this is right up my alley, you know, which is surprising because, you know, this is one of her favourite films, even though she enjoys being angry so much.
0: I don't always enjoy being angry.
1: (laughs) See, Whereas I enjoy being happy. So a film (laughs) like this really speaks to me uh, because it makes me laugh, um, but it's also very thoughtful at the same time. And I completely agree that it has a lot of heart to it. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with um, Alicia Silverstone's performance, which is partly an inspired performance, but also partly her as well. I think you know, I remember seeing an interview uh, where there was a, a scene that they were talking about, um, and she was doing a debate, and she was calling it um, um,
2: the Hadians. The Hadians, yeah.
1: Hadians in the Hadian. We can
2: totally party with the Hadians.
1: <laughs> she didn't know that that wasn't the correct way to pronounce it, but. Uh, the the you know the director decided to put it in there anyway because it just suited the character so beautifully. It had that innocence about it, but at the same don't
0: time don't forget taking the chewing gum
1: out before she <laughs> <yes>, Pulling the <laughs> chewing gum out, you know, <laughs> and she's you know so stylish in the film as well. But at the same time, she's a little bit ditzy, a little bit you know clueless. Fits her really perfectly because you know she is a little bit clueless, but she does have underneath all that a lot of heart. You know, she's not a bad person, so you don't hate her as such. You you forgive her ditziness you forgive her cluelessness, uh, and you find it quite endearing. And I think for me, that's the secret to the film itself because you care about her character. You're willing to see these imperfections as actually quite endearing qualities in a, in a character, which they are in her. Uh, mm. And As a result, you, you do sympathize uh, with, with this heroine and you know, she makes silly mistakes along the way as Emma does, obviously. Uh, mm. but you kind of forgive all that. And I think that's the key to understanding. And in a way, that's the, uh, the brilliance of the adaptation. It understands the core of what makes Emma such a a workable character and such a a likeable character, Uh, in the hands of other, you know, another performance, you could end up actually really hating that character, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm kind of curious also to see the latest adaptation of Emma, to see whether um, they've they're able to handle that very, very fine line between being, you know, annoyingly ditzy and lovably ditzy, you know, which is kind of of where uh, Alicia Silverstone fits into this. Uh, but I completely agree again with the whole '90s reference. So, uh, you know, 1995, mid '90s. The fashion sense was so '90s that it actually, you know, makes my eyes uh, cry blood <laughs> because it's just so hideous. Um, but it was spot on also about the male sense of fashion during this period. So, you the know, baggy th- pants. The Keppers. Oh God, I hated those jeans. Thank God. That sh-
0: that, sh- that shot of all of the boys walking along with their pants.
1: With their pants up, halfway down. Hanging
0: down and their boxer yeah, shorts. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that was so 90s. That was pretty much, you know, the era that I grew up in. That's what all the boys wore when I was growing up, except for me because I just, you know, I was never fat. You were always
0: too stylish. For that. I was
1: always just, I was <laughs> classically stylish, you know, back then. Uh, uh, and I didn't, I just thought they were ridiculous clothes. And so when I watched that, film and she said you know I don't understand the boys of my era I was kind of like yes you know finally a voice that I can actually mm-hmm. agree with why do they find this quite an interesting look so I think it is brilliant because it does critique its current era as opposed to simply portraying its yeah. current era as well you know it's not just saying this is what the, the era is about it was also you know having uh, kind of a bit of a dig at that era as well so I thought you know, it's, it's wonderful it's delightful it's funny it's um, also quite touching at times too. And, you know, um, as Kirsten has mentioned as well, that uh, a lot of the stars from there went on to do much bigger things. So this is Paul Rudd before he became Paul Rudd. And, you know,
0: <laughs> he still uh, looks exactly the same. It's a little uh, bit scary. I,
1: I think he's made a deal with the devil too. Oh, I
0: know. <laughs> it's just eternally useful. Um, I did see it in the, in the um, theatres as well. I have this very strong memory. It actually came out on my 12th birthday. And I remember seeing it on my 12th birthday. And I didn't know it was an adaptation of Emma either. Um, but I remember absolutely loving it and just dying laughing in the theatre. And then finding out it was an adaptation of Emma and then just loving it even more because I was already a little nerdy Jane Austen fan <laughs> um, at that at that age, but I hadn't read Emma yet. Um, I think it just works beautifully as an annotation. It really, you know, if you, we've been talking a lot through the the past um, couple of podcasts that we've done about teen movies about like getting the spirit of the text, and like, it is. It sounds like such an absurd proposition. Like, what if Emma, but was a high school student? You know, <laughs> um, but that is exactly what Emma would be like as a high school student. Um, that is exactly how she would be deluded and that's exactly how much power she would have and that's exactly how privileged she would be Um, in terms of power and privilege i think that like um the line drawn between this very rich woman in a um in a small town who is like the the rich woman in a small town um maps beautifully onto like the cool girl at school the rich cool girl at school you know that has um you know, social cachet and all this sort of stuff in her own world. It, it's absurdly beautiful how neatly Emma fits into this world that seems like the opposite of Emma, <laughs> you know. Like Emma's, uh, you know, sitting in this Regency village and it's all very provincial, but here we get, you know, 90s Bel Air, but yet it is the absolute best and most appropriate setting so obviously it's not in a, a faithful adaptation but it is has got that spirit and that's exactly how whatever would be like you know she's she's got um. you know them the meddlesomeness and the arrogance but also the sweetness you know I've never like I often um, set Emma as a text for my students to read and they always say to me that they find Emma really annoying and I have to say, I don't find Emma annoying whatsoever. I find her delightful um, because she just has this sense that she knows how to make things better. And for me, it's not coming from a place of um, arrogance, although certainly she has an element of arrogance, but she genuinely thinks that people's lives would be better if they did what she wants them to do and that she she really has a sincerity in that. And I agree with Jimmy that that's what Alicia Silverstone brings, is this sincerity of like, but if you were just arrange yourself in this way, you'd be happy and everyone would be happy. And then we would be living these perfect lives. Um, There's not a maliciousness to it. It's like a genuine attempt to, like, make things better in the way that she thinks that that they would be made better. So for me, it's the perfect adaptation um, because it takes the spirit of the book and it jettisons, um, you know, things that aren't as important. it it takes the kind of um, heart of the book, puts it in a different context and sees that it still matters, it's still relevant, it's still um, truthful, it's still um, relevant to our experiences today. I don't know, how do you feel about it as an adaptation?
2: I completely agree um, with that whole assessment. I think we're all here in agreement with (laughs) each other's thoughts on this. Um, We're just basically, we're in love with this film and Mm -hmm. as an adaptation too. Yeah. yeah, I have the same thoughts about adaptation as a process. It's about the spirit. It's, it's yeah. um, In some ways the least interesting thing you can ask about adaptation is how faithful it is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about that. So it's, yeah, it's about capturing that spirit and yeah, Emma, as you know is suggested in the title is a largely a character study of a flawed character and that's what austin does so beautifully is make us empathize with or fall in love a little bit with a character we would normally loathe a bit she's so rich she's so privileged um she's so manipulative but she does it in such a naive way and her primary Mm. motivation is to make the world a better place she just wants to be happy um, and and an she wants everyone thing.
0: around her to be happy as well. Yeah, you know?
2: that's the thing. Mm. Yeah, so she's just trying her best to, to just make, put the world right. Um, mm. But it comes from her misguided sense that she's the best person to decide what's right for everyone,
0: mm.
2: yeah. <laughs> which is a privileged thing. So, but an interesting thing about the film is that it actually didn't start out as an Emma adaptation. Oh, did um, it didn't. No, uh, Amy Heckling was basically um, asked by a film company to write, uh, to produce something about teenagers, cause it's kind of the thing to do at the time. And she was like, oh, well, it's kind of boring. I'll only do it if I can poke fun at them a bit. I'm sick of, I'm sick of writing about teenagers, but she basically produced a TV script um, and eventually evolved into sort of a film, but basically it revolved around a character who, like a teen girl who was resolved to just be happy. No, nothing phased her, she was happy no matter what. Um, And she just tried to make everything everyone else happy as well. And um, Amy Heckling realized, hang on, this reminds me a lot of Emma. And so that's when Mm. it's so for me that I think that's part of the success of the film as well. It really is rooted at the centre in a sense of character, and in that sense of naive, um, a naive desire to make the world a better place. And and that's so that's what linked the original concept with Emma, and then it evolved out of there into an incredibly a detailed and wonderful um, adaptation of the novel so it did obviously become a, a very conscious adaptation of Emma from that point on um, and then it was auctioned properly later so yeah for, for me that's just the really the magic of it comes down to the fact that yeah it's about that person at the heart and I agree with with Jimmy um, about what um, Alicia Silverstone brings to the role um, so at, at the time she'd only been in those Aerosmiths music clips and that's all you know people knew her from um she was this kind of fresh-faced blonde blue-eyed petite you know beautiful American, all-american girl basically and um yeah this was really the movie like that just propelled her into the fame that she found afterwards and i think um and that's what heckling was saying as well about alicia silverstone is that she's got that almost intimidating beauty but she's but it comes with a fresh naivety and an innocence that makes even um, older women, not just teenage women um, like her, mm. you know, it, it stops her from being too privileged, from being too removed from reality. So she's got, it's, it all comes down to the, the heart and the soul that she brings and all the, the cheeky grins and the winks and the, the facial mm. expression she does. I think that's all Alicia Silverstone. Um, in addition, see- you know, She brings it to that incredibly intelligent script that heckling provides.
0: Yeah, a scene that always stands out for me in terms of um, Cher's um, naivety and how easily it could have been awful, um, her character could have been awful, is when she's packing um, supplies for the um, Pipto Beach Relief Fund. Beach and Beach pa- yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she packs her skis and her yeah. father's like, what are you giving them his, your skis for? And she's like, well, they lost everything. Of course, that meant like sporting goods. And like... <laughs> That could be like the most cluelessly privileged thing you've ever heard, but there's such a genuineness about her. She, I mean, obviously these people don't need skis, right? Um, but like, there's lots of things that they need that are not skis. Um, but like, she genuinely thinks, well, they would probably like to go skiing. Um, she's not doing it out of like a a bad place. She's genuine about it. It's just that she's so naive and so sheltered. Um, that that's where her mind goes and like a lesser actress would play that and you would be like oh my god this rich bitch you know like can you believe how um clueless she is um but here it's just delightful it's like of course Cher's going to give them he- his keys you know <laughs> why not what what else would Cher give them so she she just plays it perfectly it's just a perfect marriage of character and actress um and script i think as well it's just it's such a funny witty tongue-in-cheek script
1: yeah, and I think part of the the, the witticism um, that has translated really, really well into contemporary or then contemporary setting, is um, Heckling's ability to actually you know, take some of those witty language that Austen uses in in her text and put it into a sort of '90s setting that makes it actually um, relevant. So one of my favourite lines of all time uh, is in the, is in the scene where one of the the girls says, "You know, oh." Uh, uh, I've got a note here from a doctor saying, you know, I can't do any physical activities where balls come flying in my face. And says, <laughs> you know, well, there goes your social life. <laughs> and just, you know, it's, it's that kind of really sharp, witty comments that is also at the same time so adolescent, but <laughs> funny that, you know, you, you know, I said it and both of you started laughing straight away. So, you know, it's, it's one of those timeless things that, yeah, it, it gets people, it, it hits people, um, it tickles their funny bone. They get it, they, they enjoy it. And that's what, uh, Austin was actually all about—it's that sparkling humour, it's that witticism, and that gets translated beautifully into this adolescent setting, uh, in in that kind of spirit sense of the word, rather than in that kind of I don't know, almost upper cross stiff manner. So it it actually works really well uh, in the high school setting, uh, and I think some of those characters uh, just translate so beautifully into the '90s that it kind of is a little bit eerie. So the um, the uh, the Elton character uh mm. at his session with uh, the cranberries just I <laughs> he's still my
0: like, Cranberries oh, CD. No, oh,
1: he's still my cranberry <laughs> CD. You know, and he's listening to, you know, the cranberries in the car and he's so into it and you're just like thinking, Oh my god, he's such a loser. Uh, yeah. But, but awesome.
0: he's exactly the kind of dude that you would think was cool when yeah. you're in high school and then you look back and you think,
1: Ooh <laughs> <laughs> And you know, there's nothing wrong with the cranberries. I quite like the cranberries myself, but it's that kind of worship of the Cranberries uh, that I think teenagers can relate to. And I think we all knew people who were like that as well. You know, someone who was obsessed with one band and would just only play or only listen to that one band Uh, and and would think they're quite cool because they listen to that one particular band or something like that.
0: Well, even the Frank Churchill character, who's, of course, Christian, Um, Like One of the storylines in the book is that he's got to go and get a haircut. Well, he's not actually getting a haircut but he's using it as an excuse. Um, But, you know, to to translate that little breadcrumb into this guy who's clearly gay, that um, Cher clearly has no idea he's gay even though he wants to hang out, watch Spartacus with her, (laughs) um, is just a piece of absolute brilliance that is just staggering. And I mean, like obviously in the novel, the, Christi- the Frank Churchill character has a has a subplot with Jane Fairfax, who's not in the um, in the Clueless film. But it doesn't matter because making his character gay and therefore exploiting the gap between what Emma Sher thinks is happening and what is actually happening is just such a brilliant move. And that that character is played. Note perfect, like his his sort of Rat Pack esque aesthetic and um, <laughs> his love of like 50s movies and 50s music, and shares absolute cluelessness about how to like cope with this guy. Um, it's just done so beautifully. It's just the perfect
1: translation of that
0: character into the modern setting.
1: And he kind of looks like I forgot the actor's name now, uh, Bre- Brendan somebody from um, Beverly Hills 90210. It's almost like oh yeah, you know yeah, Brendan yeah. Walsh. It's almost like he's mirrored on, you know, that particular mould. But I think that kind of change in translation addresses the point that you had a problem with last week, Steph, um, with um, She's the Man. that you know, they weren't brave enough to to go to the obvious territory, even though it would mean veering away from the direction of the book. And in this one, we see an example of, yes, they Mm. went into the territory that veers away from the book because obviously, you know, uh, Frank Churchill isn't, in in the original book, but that's okay. You know, we can look at that um, that misunderstanding, her thinking, oh, they have this relationship, but actually no, they have a platonic relationship. It's a meeting of the yeah. mind, not so much a sexual attraction because he could not possibly be sexually attracted to her because he's obviously <laughs> watching Spartacus for very, very different reasons. Yes, He's watching Spartacus. So <laughs> you know, it's, it's a wonderful translation um, into a contemporary setting, but also a very subversive translation, a way of thinking um, of how to relate some of those ideas and make it probably more uh, relatable for us today um, and also make it a lot more inclusive for us today. Yeah.
0: So What's the absolutely- major change, really? I mean, they're cutting, like, the Jane Fairfax um, Frank Churchill plot is, like, the second plot, so to speak, of the book um, in yes. terms of, you know, the, the, but it's the relationships. To- Sorry?
2: Yeah, I-, I think it's the only move you could make, translating exactly. it into the modern um, context because... What possible reason would a teenage guy have for keeping his relationship with a girl secret in high school?
0: Yeah,
2: it didn't, it didn't work. so they It of, wouldn't have worked, yeah. yeah. And so mm. it would have become, the motivation behind that would have become a distracting plot element, I think. So translating mm. him into um, a gay man just opens it up to, um, a, a, it, it basically opens it up from Jane Austen's very narrowly heterosexual world um, and into a world that much more closely resembles our reality.
0: Yeah, um, and just a diverse world.
2: world. Yeah, exactly. It opens it up to more people. And I, I really like that. I think it's just a subtle way of, um, yeah, in, of of translating his character. I also really like Travis as a character. I think he... He's um, delightful, Travis. <laughs> he's just... And Breckermeyer plays him so well. Um, and he's got this kind of dopey charming kindness to him um in fact in in some of the interviews i've seen of of these actors afterwards he was saying that he modeled himself on keanu reeves uh, in bill and ted um, so yeah. yeah and you get that that same kind of lovable goofiness uh, he just plays it so perfectly and i think translating um the austin's class issues into um there's still sort of some economic issues behind, but it's primarily social distinctions within the Mm. high school world. And I think that's a really smart move as well to indicate hierarchy and privilege, but in a, a context that translates to more people.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing that Jane Austen does really well, and especially I think in Emma, because Emma's are really sort of different, Austen, in that nobody ever goes anywhere. Um, So, you know, in in Pride and Prejudice or in Nottingham Abbey, there's like journeys, sense of sensibility, there's journeys, there's different settings. But here it's just in Highbury, it's just in this very small town. Um, And it seems like that there's like a core core character list of like 10 people, not even. Um, And like the best way of shrinking that down is to think about a high school right, it's just sort of maps perfectly um, because it's like this really insular community where there's like not much movement in or out because obviously you're at high school and you're sort of trapped there until you graduate. Yeah. Um, and so I love the way that she makes Ty and um, Travis, you know, the, the sort of, tr- the stoners basically, um, and the the rich kids, are the rich kids, and then, you know, you'll have like the music guys or, um, you know, the art people, the theatre people, you know, like everybody has their kind of place and that's a good kind of way to think about class in a kind of insulated community. And she does, and like the thing with Clueless is that it's so clever from the get-go. We're thinking about the opening um, sequences where there's all these shots of like teenagers looking beautiful, hanging out in these perfect places and like laughing together. And then they're like, um, you know, what do you think this is? is this is Noxema commercial or something. I mean, straight away... Yeah. It but seriously I have a
2: way normal life for a teenage girl
0: <laughs> and then you see her like going through her computer yeah selecting her um, wardrobe <laughs> and then like there the automated wardrobe comes across so that her outfit is that she selected comes out it's yeah, just that, it's like
2: so far from reality from the ordinary normal life and that so yeah, yeah from the get go it's dripping with irony and, yeah. and, and and portraying as well there, from the get go her naivety Um, She has no idea at all that that is nowhere near a a normal life, but at the same time, she can recognize um, that it looks like a commercial Um, and is hinting at the commercialism of the society she lives in, but she just doesn't join the dots. (laughs) She just doesn't get that, places her in an incredibly privileged position.
0: Never forget her mother who died of a routine complication in um, a a complication of routine liposuction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's also part of the the key to what makes her a successful character, that she is a privileged character, which Emma, of course, is a privileged character. But she's yeah. not uh, a snobbish character. You know, there's, there's no snobbery about her. She's just incredibly naive in, in thinking that that kind of privilege that she experiences the world also experiences mm. the world. And when they don't, she'll try to get them to experience as well. She's, she'll try to help them out in that process. I mean, there's, there's a wonderful scene there that... Uh, Again, it's very quotable. You know, we said earlier it's a very quotable film, but it's a very quotable scene for me because it's the epitome of how you know she's not a snob, but she's also quite intelligent at the same time, despite her you know ditziness and her cluelessness. Uh, and that's when uh, she's picked up um, from the party for, uh, by uh, the um, the poor Rudd character whose name completely eludes me. Josh. He's meant to be Mister. Yeah, Josh did. Um, and Josh's girlfriend's in the car and they're having this intense debate about mm-hmm. Hamlet and Josh's <laughs> girlfriend says, you know, it's like Hamlet said, you know, to thy own self be true. And she's like, uh, uh, no, Hamlet didn't say that. And you know, It was that
0: Polonius guy. It's
1: like, I <laughs> think I know Hamlet very well. And she's like, well, I know Mel Gibson very well. And he didn't say that. It was that Polonius dude. Um, <laughs> you, kind of, you know, you, you get the sense that, okay, well, underneath all that ditsiness, there is an intelligent person who's able to um, understand text in a really, really interesting way, not necessarily in the classical way that people think about it, but she can uh, definitely pick up on some of those nuances. And she also has a, I think, an, a nose for snobbery as well. She dislikes this girl because of that, you know, she's so almost stereotypically snobbish that, you know, she is almost completely against that. So to say, well, no, the, the way you behave isn't the way I like to behave. So we're getting this contrast between those two characters. Um, and that's kind of what helps us as well to, to really... Like shares a character, and and like that Emma model as a character as well. And yeah. remember
2: when Austin she... as well the same thing when he picks her up in the car and mm. he's expressing basically, you know, that he could do better than Ty, and he, she says, "Oh, you are a snob and a half." <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and that's the same Austin does that as well. Um, you know, so that's where we get that sense of um, of real of what real malicious snobbery looks like, as opposed to just a naive, you know, um, lack of recognition of how privilege works in the world.
0: And when Ty becomes snobbish, when she's sort of turned Ty into a monster, um, <laughs> she when and Ty sort of is is um, dismissive of Travis. She's like really shocked by that, and she's really kind of like, "What have I done?" You know, this this girl has turned into a snob under my sort of training, um, and she's quite revolted by that
1: interesting because, you know, she's not a snob, but she does create snobbery um, that she's not aware that, that she's doing because she, she doesn't understand that it's her character that's uh, when put into a privileged situation would want to help. But when you take other characters and put them into the privileged situation, they may not have that same desire. And it's that desire to help that actually makes her, elevate her into a much better character. Um, and I do have to give props to that wonderful line that tie insult her with by saying, you are know, just a virgin who can't drive.
0: <laughs> Way harsh, tie <laughs> That's so good.
2: I agree. I think, um, yeah, it's, I forget what I was going to say now. I'm too busy laughing at that line. There are so many good, so many good ways to do that. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's just, It it does come down again, like we keep saying this um, about her her just her desire to to help. And I was going to say the same thing actually about um, that being the turning point of realizing, uh, basically taking a good hard look at herself by putting someone else in her situation, by creating someone in her own image. She doesn't like that image very much, and that's what makes her turn introspective and realize, "Wow, (laughs) you know, I I better do something about this." Um, And she, you know, she has a chance to actually make um, her actions then better reflect the person that she really is, mm. which it, which is, you know, kind of the lesson in the, in the whole thing, which is actually really nice. That's kind of, again, that's where the, the heart comes in. You know, it's such a human, um, it's such a human flaw to have that inability to tr- to truly see yourself and see your own flaws, um, and to look at yourself the way other people would do. And for her to be able to do that is, um, in in both Austen's novel and in this film, I think, is just... uh, It's really... It's something that needs to be handled very carefully, and I think both Austen and Heckling knock it out of the park. They just do it perfectly.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, I love that the moral of the story is that she needs to know herself better, yes, um, and that she needs to realise that she can't sort of control other people's lives, yes, but she doesn't fundamentally change, Right she's still the same share at the end. Um, Like even that final fake out where um, you see the wedding and she's like, ew, you know, I'm 16, this is LA, not whatever, I can't remember what she said. Um, You know, she's still got the same sense of humour. She hasn't fundamentally changed. She's got, you know, she's now with Josh, but um, they play it lightly. Um, It's not about her kind of becoming smart right, Um, and leaving aside her kind of um, superficiality or whatever, she's still the same character. She's just learnt that um, she has to have more awareness of the people around her and what they want and how they feel instead of kind of imposing her will on others. But she's still the same naive, kind of silly, clueless character at the end as she is at the beginning. There's not a substantial kind of um, I have to change everything about myself narrative there. It's not a narrative of transformation. It's just a narrative of, like, taking on... um, more self-awareness and more awareness of, of what um, people around you want versus what you want for them so it's not one of those um you know i have to change every part of me and then i'll be rewarded with the hot guy at the end um yeah, and he unlike and
2: a lot of teen movies in the 90s and we mentioned yeah. she's all that as a classic offender yeah <laughs> um, quite from the 90s but last time we spoke about 10 things ahead about you but yeah i think that's one of the strengths of um this character is that she doesn't have to change because she is pretty awesome as is she just needs to come to certain realizations about
0: herself and where she's situated in the world and
2: use that that power for good basically
0: and she still wants to help people at the end because it's it's um she just sort of redirects all of that kind of um controlling tendency I suppose um into like charity bequests and like being really super supportive of her friends you know the way she goes to see Travis doing his skating and all of that um it's not like she's lost that desire to make people happy for people around her to be happy she's just letting them do it in their own way um and not telling them the way to be happy anymore so the the character is fundamentally the same at the end she's in the beginning she's just sort of changed the way that she does that the way that she goes about that so instead of you know saying you can't be with him you should be with her and you should be with him and blah 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 um she just Gets super into charity, which is great, right? Even if she does, even if she does give them her skis.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, a fun little. Um, That's that wedding scene is so fun. I think it's such a lovely way to finish the film. So it kind of brings everyone together again um so it's got that kind of almost like taking a bow at the end of a performance you, know, you get everyone on stage again and amy heckling herself is actually in that scene she's is standing she? next to share um up you know in the wedding party and then you see her fighting with everyone for the bouquet when i it's
0: love open. that <laughs> <laughs> just throws some punches <laughs> yeah
2: um i think you know we've been talking a, a bit about um female characters and what they're usually put through in a teen film, which is like you were saying, this um, almost cruel transformation away from who they are. Um, this, it's, it's positioned or it's sold to us. It's packaged as if they're becoming the best version of themselves because they've been lucky enough to meet a guy who will show them how to be the best version of themselves. Because otherwise how the hell would they have ever known <laughs> without a man to intervene and show them just how good they could be. So Um, irritating. (laughs) Yeah, it's very irritating. And I love that um, in a way, so, you know, in Emma, we have um, Mr. Knightley's um, constant chiding of Emma, but she almost, she spends 21 years basically not listening to that. And I kind of admire that about
0: her. (laughs) And
2: she she does come to a lot of these realisations on her own, but it's not entirely independent. She is part of a community and it is, you know, um, she's, she's got quite a few people that help her, um, come to these realizations. Um, but one really interesting thing as well about the film is that when, um, heckling had, had finished it and was trying to basically, um, get it picked up by a big production company. Um, the, the men at 20th century Fox apparently, um, didn't get it. They didn't like it. And they wanted her to rewrite it so that there were less women in it. So it's got the three main female. Oh dear! Yes. Can you imagine if they hadn't done? And she was obviously she said no. And then finally, you know, Paramount picked it up later, um, and it is what it is. And she's she's actually said that this is um, this film is the closest she's come to actually realizing the vision that was in her head. Because obviously, you know, you you write something and you can direct it, but it'll grow and evolve away from that original vision and become something else. But apparently, this is very almost exactly what she had in her head. And I love that. I love that it stayed true to that original vision. And again, I think this is part of its success is because it has this cohesiveness to every aspect of it that comes down to um, her vision, much like Austen's novel is a production, that's Austen's production. Um, And Heckling says, you know, if Austen were alive today, she'd be directing films. (laughs) So I really like that sense of, that sense Heckling has of that continuity and of doing the same work. Um, I, I just find that so interesting, as as sort of thinking about how to translate literature onto the screen, as just seeing it as the same thing.
0: I think that what's what strikes me about that too is, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me that um, that the, the feedback was for more is for you know more men, less women, um, because certainly I don't think that like the female-led film was such a um, A big thing in the '90s, and and I just recall even as a child watching because I was 12 when I saw this, right? So um, I was a child, and I just remember thinking like, this is a movie that takes girls, teenage girls, seriously. Like Mm -hmm. she's she's a joke, but she's not just a joke. Um, You know, she has her introspective moments. She has um, you know moments of sadness. She has moments of reflection. um, She has moments of disappointment. And I just remember thinking that that was amazing that this was a film that um, that took the experiences of a teenage girl and didn't um, c- completely believe. I mean, obviously, they're played for us, but it's not about, you know, look at these stupid teenagers and how dumb they are. It's about, yes. um, you know, what can we think about and learn through thinking about the the lives of these teenagers. And knowing that, you know, the connection to Austin just makes that kind of sharper. Like there is a connection and a relevance for Austin and her stories to, you know, young girls. It's not about being kind of remote literature um, that's sort of up there on the shelf that you can't access. It's actually something that can speak to, you know, little twelve year old Stephanie in nineteen ninety five. You know, that was that was nice to know that like you could, I don't know, be taken seriously in that way.
2: Yeah. There's no part of the film that even when it's making jokes, so we see, we walk, go into the classroom and we see everyone with a different version of plastic surgery on their face. You know, they've got their braces over their noses and <laughs> they've got all their mobile phones out in a different fashion. There's no part of the film, I think, that feels malicious. No. It is definitely making fun of commercial kind of um superficial teenage worlds that was marketed in chewing gum commercials you know like um thai is there singing along to the mentos ad um, the fresh <laughs> <laughs> and so this is it, it's just basically saying look this is producing these kind of teenagers but it's not at all malicious you know we're invited to just consider it but not in a way that makes us feel superior because we're complicit in this as well we're watching a film that is arguably you know doing something similar it's presenting this fantasized brightly colored perfect version of a teenage world and so many people emulated the movie after it came out in the fashion and the the language
0: um you know <laughs> so there were i remember wearing those tartan skirts
2: <laughs> yeah well yeah and people still do i mean it's still it's so iconic and i think you know um, you're sitting here with your Zoom background is currently the Sunnydale Library from Buffy, which I think I love you now. Remember <laughs> <laughs> the Sunnydale Library? Um, I, I think you know a film like this had uh, probably a big impact on Buffy because Buffy's outfits were always very styled and very on point yeah. as well. Um, and it clearly, Clueless had a big impact on Ten Things I Hate About You, which we've already yeah. talked about as an extremely successful adaptation and a successful teen movie in its own right. But I think what's interesting some in some ways is that Clueless doesn't... It almost doesn't feel like a teen movie. And I think that's partly because it doesn't have the same... Those same tired teen tropes that we were talking about. You know, the the transformation scenes yeah. and things like that. It, it's much deeper than that. It's much more clever.
1: Yeah, because it's, um, it's ultimately a film really about growth. Because um, at, the, at the end... What she, you know, it's, I completely agree. It's not that, you know, somebody teaches her something like, a, you know, an older male figure is trying to teach her something. It's that she actually comes to re, a realisation herself. It's a form of self actualization. The wonderful scene at the end there where she realises the, the kind of beauty of the people around her.
0: I was going to say
1: that, yeah. Those wonderful moments where she should say, you know, oh, and, you know, Dion and and her boyfriend, when no one's watching, they're actually really sweet to each other. And, you know, she starts to see that um, there is beauty, there's intelligence, there's there's wonderful things in the world around her. And that's not somebody teaching her that. It's her coming to that realisation herself. And that's what we actually like about the film. You know, we can relate to a character like that who's not taught a lesson and therefore she learns the lesson, but rather Mm. life has taught her that lesson. The sum total of all the experiences that she's had throughout this film has taught her to see the beauty in the people around her, and to understand that's why the people who are still around her, because she does see that sort of beauty um, in those characters. Uh, but I was also thinking that um, a lot of film historians has sort of put this film as the first of you know a bunch of trend-setting films for adolescents. Mm-hmm. So you know you've got Clueless, and the next big one um, was Mean Girls. Which yeah. you might absolutely love as well, but it's not an adaptation, unfortunately. So we can't really talk about that one. But it does very similar things to what this one yeah. does, which is you know it creates a whole new idiom um, to, to to think about adolescence, uh, and it creates a whole new, you know, very quotable thing. Can so we
0: stop trying to make fetch happen? <laughs> <not gonna.
1: laughs> It's butter a carb. Um, <laughs> so, yes. You know, it's, it's a whole bunch of these. You know, um, almost every decade we get these one big yeah. set in one. And I think we will probably be talking about another one that's of that nature. So I think Easy A is another one of those big sort of yeah. type of film that defines an era, defines a generation um, and does it in a very clever way rather mm. than in a mean, you know, sort of critical way. Manner, It is critical, but it's, it's, it's critiquing it in um, a loving manner, if that can be said, said about but it. But I
0: think, and that's what I think Jane Austen does as well. You know, mm. she's not, um, she is critiquing things, like say Miss Bates in Emma, right? She's, she's making her a figure of fun and she's ridiculous and whatever, but she's not actually, she has a lot of sympathy for Miss Bates because she, like Mr Knightley, realises that she's in a really awful situation because she's this woman who's, you know, fallen down in the world. Um, she doesn't have the money and security that she once had and that, you know, now because she's poor, basically she's a sort of figure of fun. Um, So there's a soft, um, a kind of soft critique, like a loving critique that I think is characteristic of Austen and that there's this loving critique in in Clueless, like even when she's talking about all the men and, you know, the way they've got their pants down, um, you know, like it's not about, yes, that she makes a good point that, you know, men don't have to put in a lot of you know, attention to their appearance and women are expected to. So that is a guess, pertinent point. But she's not being cruel or malicious or rude about um, these boys and the, the film isn't being cruel or malicious or rude. Even when characters are ridiculous or funny, there is a kind of softness to the way they're presented. So, yeah, Jimmy, that's exactly what I was thinking of that scene where she thinks about how loving um, Dion is um, and how Christian just wants to see the beautiful in everything. Um, there's this kindness that's extended to all the characters, except maybe Amber. Ambular. Yeah, such a Monet. Once you get up yeah. close, it's just a big old mess.
2: Do you prefer a fashion victim or ensemble challenged?
0: <laughs> Besides her. I mean, I can't think of any other character who is not, I mean, even the teachers are like, you know, oh, kindly, yeah, they're gorgeously um, Miss portrayed.
2: Geist. Yes. Miss Geist, Mr. Hall. I was going to say we need to talk about that because that's such a, that's such um, a big part of the heartwarming core of this film, particularly yeah. those scenes where um, the you see the romance blooming and you see Miss Geist um, and Mr Hall standing next to her car and she's trying to open the door and she just gives it a, a bump with her hip and she's just so... She's trying to be graceful, but she just can't help herself but be clumsy and, and human. And it's just so gorgeous. It's such a sensitive portrayal and uh, of teachers. And I think that's quite unusual for teen films as well. We often have this kind of sense that a teen film has to have the teenage perspective of yeah. horrendous teachers because we hate teachers, we hate adult authority, you know. But or parents not. as They're well. so yeah. Sweet. And and I was going to say um, when we were talking about really intelligent. Um, translations of characters into their modern equivalents. I love that Mr. Woodhouse, hypochondriac, excessively concerned for Emma and therefore overly protective is translated basically into um, a kind of mob boss figure. (laughs) He's a lawyer, he's a litigator. He's, you know, so he's, he's not a hypochondriac, but um, he's strict and he's overly protective in a way that um, is more relatable today. I think than a, than a excessively elderly hypochondriac man
0: would be. And it was sometimes, you know, given his perspective, because there's that scene where he realises that there's something going on between Cher and Josh and he just sort of smiles at them. And he knows, and you know, that, um, that they're moving towards each other. And so you are temporarily put into his perspective um, mm-hmm. in a really clever way. And he's not like an ogre and he's quite funny. And there's like parent jokes in there. Like I think that um, like the joke about Billy Holiday is, uh, is I think yeah. a parent joke. Because, like, what teenager knows who Billy Holiday is? Um, but also the way that, um, like, you know, the things he says to Christian, like, "Do you think the death of Sammy Davis Jr. left an opening in the rap pack?" Um, such a good line, <laughs> you know. Like, I think that there is like a real recognition that a lot of teenagers are going to be watching with their with their parents potentially, and the parents aren't the kind of like repressive ogres, but they're actually like real, actual people who are funny. And have romances themselves, Um, and that's so rare. And I agree that the teacher's romance is lovely. And I love the way she uses coffee because she's like, I know, I know what older people like. They like coffee, so I'll give him really good coffee, and I'll tell them to share it, and it works because they do like like adults do like coffee.
2: (laughs) Um, So cute, and the the um the excessively romantic quote, um, which is from notes. Notes. It's just that's what I mean it's just there's so much intelligence there but where we are primed to expect the actual true reference we get that's where the comedy comes in and her naive Duh, <laughs> <laughs> um so it's just so sweet and I, I just think it's so clever um the, the way that um it, it really is just a sense of a, a society um and a little bubble where the teenagers and the adults kind of all intermingle Together, yeah. even Mr. Hall in his classroom, he's just so forgiving of all the crap the students are doing. Travis is trying to jump out the window after <laughs> he, he gets just his like, brace grabs back. Him. Can we please postpone the suicide attempts until next period? <laughs> he just <laughs> drags him back from the window. And I think, again, like that final scene at the wedding, that's their wedding of their teachers, and all the students are invited. Yeah. You know, share is up there as, um, you know, in the bridal party. It's just so sweet. Yeah. It's just a nice levelling kind of, um, again, like a a confirmation that this represents basically like a microcosm of society and everyone's in yeah. there and it's this little bubble. It's basically hybrid, It's the village, but it's yeah. just in
0: our modern time. Yeah. That's why it works so beautifully. It's just the perfect modern equivalent.
1: Yeah. And it's also very clever not to... Um Austin as well, because you know most Austin novel ends in a, in
0: a mm, way. Exactly.
1: You know, you, you have to end it, but of course you can't get share, share married uh, <laughs> this way. Uh, and, you know, this film because it'd be a little bit ridiculous. Um, I do want to quickly talk about the, the Knightley translation because I'm, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I love Paul Rudd in in the role. I, I think he did a fantastic job, but I, I've always had a bit of a problem with the Knightley character. Maybe it's the ickiness factor of you know have them having been sort of this almost parental or sibling relationship, which then gets turned <laughs> into a romantic relationship. So that's always been a bit of an icky factor for me with Emma. And it gets translated again, very cleverly, I have to say, in Clueless as a stepbrother, um, which is not, who's not related to her in any manner at all. ex brother. Uh, yeah. ex brother. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. For like five months, five years ago or something. Five years ago.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I think it does make an attempt to remove that icky factor. Yeah. But it doesn't stop the fact that, you know, they they did kind of grow up together as almost like sibling type of characters and then uh, there's this strange romance that develops um, along the way. So I think it does translate that very well. But for me, it's just uh, the nature of that relationship had always been a little bit problematic. I do like the fact that it gets translated. Oh, sorry, there's a massive storm about to <laughs> happen here. Uh Lightning, that's because it's, it's about to come down to Sydney soon, I think.
2: Well, do you know what that is? That's
0: because you found a flaw in Clueless. and
1: no, the, the gods are not happy with you.
0: How dare you, <laughs> you say something. Smote down. How dare you say something unkind about this film and about Paul Rudd, who is perfect.
1: He's wonderful in it and, as I said, <laughs> it's a brilliant adaptation, but it's just the nature of that relationship that had always bothered me. It bothers me in Emma and it bothers me a little bit in, in this one as well. I do love that the translation then takes it into this, Blended family idea, which is you know very contemporary. Um, so I, I think that works beautifully. But I mean, how, how did you two feel about that relationship?
2: I think he, for me, he just falls into the category of like a family friend. By that point, they do make a big deal of it. You know, they they have to put in the dialogue that says, "Why do you even still come over here? Our parents were barely married, and it was five years ago." You know, and she, you know he says, "Oh, just because you know my mom's married another guy doesn't make him my dad." And she says, "Actually, that's exactly what it makes him." <laughs> So there's this sense that they are no longer family, um, but he just visits every now and then. And I think for me, I guess I didn't see a problem with it. I guess I didn't think too much about it. They, I guess because they cover their bases. They're absolutely not related. They, didn't, they haven't really grown up in the sense of having a, a very young childhood together. So they've never mm-hmm. seen each other as brother and sister. They were kind of just forced together by that kind of you know um, merging of families almost you can imagine the children being reluctant you know you're not my real dad and you're not my real brother and (laughs) um so yeah I I didn't really have an issue with it
0: I didn't have an issue with it either I remember it being a big kind of source of conversation when I was um, a kid when it came out um and I never saw the issue because um yeah like you said they're not actually related they have lapsed into kind of family friends and it just seems to me to be like a really decent portrayal of like a really organically um developing relationship like they know each other really well they really know each other they've had years and years of of being friends and um being able to be themselves around each other um and so it it was just like i don't know i find that more kind of um Nice than the kind of you know well I saw this hawkeye and we started dating kind of you know um, narrative that that you see in most teen films where you feel like they've known each other for like five seconds before they decide they're in love with each other yeah. um, you know that they've they've had years to kind of have this develop slowly and you can see that he really even though he you know they bicker and he makes fun of her and whatever he actually really does respect her. Um, like he does kind of have this this um, real, I don't know, kind of acknowledgement of um, of her cleverness. And, you know, he defends her to the other lawyer who says that she's a ditz. Um, you know, he does he does think that she's clever. He does know her. So I, I didn't have a problem with it either.
2: I think it also, um, I'm just trying to think of the rationale behind doing that because I was thinking, what else could you have made in? Like maybe a neighbour or a... Um... Um, a family friend, but that, you know, making them pseudo siblings gives them the, um, the license to to bicker and for him to critique her. And that's what Mr. Knightley has always done is heavily critiqued Emma while also being protective of her. And I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of the only way they could have done that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I think we've just about run out of time. Um, So I think we should probably wrap up for today. You're getting the sense that we all love flueless. (laughs) <laughs> um, I think our effusive praise and our jumping on Jimmy when he um, had dared to say something even mildly <laughs> critical of the film would give you an indication <laughs> of how we feel about it. Um, so we'll be back in around two weeks, I think, with Easy A next time, another in our teamed adaptations. Um, so thanks, Kirsten. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you very much for having me, as always. Um, and we'll see you guys again in two weeks. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you feel so inclined. Drop us a line and Twitter at Twitter or um, at MQ English, or go to um, fromthelighthouse.org to send us an email. See ya! Bye.